sometimes you need to hit the pause button as a clinician um, and a researcher and say, hang on, this is what my underlying assumption is. We want to be evidence-based practitioners, but in fact, this is just how we should practice. Ethics is every part of every clinical decision that we make. And what it is that we do is we make lives better. Welcome to Speak Up, the Speech Pathology Australia podcast. This podcast series highlights conversations with esteemed contributors in the speech pathology space. We explore key issues in the profession in a short and easy to listen to format. Let's hear what this week's contributors have to say. This is Susan Starr and... And Colleen Kerr. And we're from Speech Pathology Australia's New South Wales Professional Education Branch. We have the pleasure of chatting today with Dr. Nicola Clayton. Nicola is a clinical specialist speech pathologist with more than 20 years experience in adult dysphagia. Nicola is currently employed at Concord Repatriation General Hospital and also runs her own private practice. Nicola is recognised nationally and internationally for her clinical expertise and research in the assessment and treatment of complex swallowing disorders in critical care, respiratory disease and severe burn injury, highly specialised areas of speech pathology practice. Nicola recently delivered a webinar on dysphagia and respiratory disease and critical care, which is very timely considering COVID-19. Hi, Nicola, and thanks for taking the time to speak with us today. I'm so excited to be talking to you because I have to say I've followed your career for more than 20 years, well, for the 20 years, and, uh, and you know, you've had a stellar career. And so it's, I think it's wonderful that we get time to, to reflect on that. And I just wanted to say thank you for coming to us, particularly at this, in this tumultuous time, you know, with us all dealing with COVID and so on. Um, when I had the opportunity to think about questions to ask you today, uh, I wanted to ask you straight up what, what you think makes a good clinician uh, great in a particular field, because obviously you are somebody that's, that's shining in a particular area of practice. And I'm interested in your thoughts on what makes a clinician great in a particular field. Oh, thank you so much for the question. Thank you very much, uh, both Susan um, and uh, and Colleen, for having me today. Um, in terms of what makes a good clinician great in a particular field, look, I really I feel really passionate um, about that. A good clinician uh, becomes a great clinician really is one that not only utilises evidence-based practice, um, but also creates that evidence-based practice and really embeds it um, into their daily uh, clinical activity. Um, and also, if you can embed this research into your daily clinical practice, I think it really makes you really quite invested um, into the outcomes of your patients and you really want to see them succeed and it really sort of not only does the patient thrive from that, but I think as a professional, uh, you do that as well. I really think that um, as speech pathologists, uh, we're very ambitious professionals. Um, I think we're good at pushing um, the boundaries in terms of our clinical expertise, but also we're quite respectful of our scope of practice as well, and really good at utilising the multidis team as well as other experts to really um, build not only our clinical profile, but also to really um, promote and uh, expedite the outcomes of our patients as well. And I'm imagining that at the, at the moment, during the COVID-19 pandemic, the connectedness of the multidisciplinary team must be so paramount because you're developing procedures as you go where we're dealing with something so new. 
Look, absolutely. And I mean, I think as speech pathologists, communication comes naturally to us. And I think that's something that we do very, very well. And it is absolutely critical that we do communicate so clearly with our multi-disc teams and we need to work as a very cohesive unit. Um, I've been very, very fortunate uh, throughout my career to be a part of many different teams, not only speech pathology teams, but multi-disc teams in ICU, in respiratory and burns. And I think working as a very collaborative and cohesive unit with that sort of mutual goal um, can really only benefit our patients. And and that certainly has been highlighted by uh, the current uh, pandemic, what is COVID-19, is we're all really thinking on our feet and having to really act in a very timely manner. And I guess some of the restrictions in practice have meant, um, well, across the board for professionals, really. So it's changed the way we're all assessing and and you felt that found that in your area of practice look absolutely um and it's a really delicate balance that we have to try and negotiate we not only want to provide our patients with the best possible care but we need to be looking after ourselves and our team members as well um so i think it's it's really really tricky to try and negotiate um, some of this ground that we haven't touched previously um, and be quite creative in the way that we're managing our patients and be quite open to doing things differently. Mm. So would you, would you see this as an emerging area of practice or do you see that there will be new areas of practice that potentially arise from our experiences in, in COVID? Look, absolutely. I mean, uh, certainly in my my lifetime, fortunately, I haven't experienced a pandemic and I really don't want to have to experience another one. I hope for my Mm. children's sake, they don't have to either. Um, But I think it's also teaching us how we need to be able to think on our feet and look at at how we can actually tackle some of these aspects in, in new and different creative ways. Um, and hopefully sort of build that evidence base and that experience. So should something like this uh, happen again, we know how to actually manage that. And I certainly also think that keeping those communication lines open, not only on a national scale, but also an international scale, can only benefit not only us as professionals, um, being making sure that we can deliver the best possible care to our patients, but also to be able to protect ourselves as well and protect our profession. So when all this is hopefully over, that um, we haven't restricted ourselves too much um, and not been um, uh, hesitant to be able to provide care to our patient um, and making sure that we actually do have this sort of role uh, to, to play, albeit a little bit different than what we normally would do. Mm, mm. So, uh, so Nicola, um, it's interesting to hear some of the things that you're finding in the acute setting that, that for clinicians in the post-acute environment, we might be dealing with down the track um, and beyond the respiratory consequences. Some things, for example, relating to potentially increased neurological risks and so on associated with COVID. Yeah, look, absolutely. This is a, a situation that is very, very rapidly evolving and, um, and certainly, um, sort of even just a few weeks ago, we were thinking that we would not necessarily see a lot of these patients tracheostomized. We thought we were dealing a lot with 
um, ICU acquired weakness and respiratory disease. And look, we, we certainly are, um, but there is emerging evidence coming out from the UK and Europe uh, surrounding laryngeal edema and the fact that these patients are failing extubation, uh, requiring tracheostomy, and some of them uh, might be an emergency tracheostomy. There are some vascular consequences. We are seeing some uh, brainstem uh, type presentation, which quite clearly the speech pathologist has, has a paramount role um, in not only the assessment, but also the treatment with these patients. And um, we're certainly seeing with these patients that it's not um, something that is a quick fix. Um, that they are taking um, quite a long time to, to recover. And, and I think the role of the speech pathologist is paramount there. And Nicola, I was wondering, um, what do you see as, other than obviously with COVID and obviously the respiratory um, speech pathology problems we can see, what are some other emerging areas of clinical practice that warrant further research? Look, I mean, um, apart from being a clinician, I'm a, I'm a clinical researcher as well, and that's something that's very, very um, near and dear to my heart. So um, throughout my career, I have engaged in clinical research in a few different domains, um, but there's always areas that we can still uh, continue to, to explore and emerge on, and there's certainly areas uh, that are emerging currently and ones that we really need to really sort of flesh out to be able to treat um, our, our patients and I think where our evidence is lacking and, and or where there's evidence of, of emerging sort of trends in research is really looking at that critical care population, looking at not only the, the incidence and the presentation of dysphagia, but how do we rehabilitate these, these patients? Um, how do we, do we manage um, these critical illness patients when they've got so many comorbidities? It's not just a, a, a single diagnosis. Um, and some other populations um, that I've also worked with that I certainly think that there is still evidence emerging and ones that we still need to investigate is in respiratory disease, um, as well as also the, all those other acute surgical populations. Now, I know there's, there's quite a bit of, of, of evidence around head and neck surgery and the role of the speech pathologist, not only in communication, but also swallowing. But I'm thinking other types of acute surgery as well. Um, specific to myself, um, I've done a lot of work with severe burn injury, but also in gastro, upper GI, but the others, other acute surgical populations are, as well. I really think they're, they're areas that we can delve into. And do you think like since um, when you look back and reflect on your career so far, do you know how do you think it's changed like when you first started working in ICU and seeing patients with dysphagia um, from, you know, I guess that critical weakness, ICU deconditioning, like what do you remember what you were doing, what did you do then to treat these patients and what do you, you know, how's that changed? Look, I think for starters, certainly the profile of speech pathology in ICU has changed drastically. Certainly over the last sort of, um, sort of 10, 15, even 20 years, I think the, the profile of speech pathology is so much better um, than, than what it was previously. I think uh, we're very well accepted in, in most um, larger hospitals and even some of the smaller hospitals as well. We're very well accepted as part of that multi-disc team. Um, not only from a sort of swallowing perspective, but also communication uh, as well. So I think the other aspects that are really um, changing sort of over this period of time is I think we can give our patients a lot more credit. Um, I think they're a lot more resilient um, than what we give them credit for. I think we can push them harder. 
certainly in some of the more recent uh, research that I've been engaged in, I've been doing uh, looking into respiratory muscle strength training. Uh, so that's a study that I was uh, well supposed to be presenting at Dysphagia Research Society before it got cancelled. Um, it is going online. I'm not quite sure when that is getting released. But certainly we can push um, our, not only our dysphagic patients, but also our communication patients in ICU so much more. And along with the, the trends for lighter sedation as well, our patients, whilst they're still intubated and mechanically ventilated, they're alert and they're wanting to be able to communicate. And that makes it really, really tricky, um, not only from um, a psychological perspective, but for the patient to be able to advocate for their own care as well. So another project that I'm involved in is, is um, we've, uh, we've been fortunate enough to, to gather funding uh, to look at developing a app um, as well as utilising a touchscreen tablet to facilitate communication um, in the entire ICU with mechanically ventilated patients as well as those on non-invasive ventilation as well and that's called iTalk. Um, so it's relatively in its infancy at this point. We have ethics approval um, and we have purchased the iPads but we're in the phase of sort of developing that app um, and there's whilst there's apps out there in other sort of international um, uh, forums, um, they're not specifically for Australian ICUs and I think we're in quite a unique environment where we really like to be able to tailor make something specifically for the Australian ICU for our patients to be able to communicate not only with staff, um, to be able to advocate for their own care and their, be a part of that decision making process but for them to also be uh, able to engage with their family as well. It's really, really mm. quite critical. Mm. Which must be essential for maintaining mood and, and that must have a great impact on outcome if you can ensure those communication channels are open the whole way through their intensive recovery. Oh, look, absolutely. There, there is studies to suggest that uh, when communication is optimised in a mechanically ventilated patient, uh, that not only mood and mental health is improved, but there is also some suggestion that the duration of mechanical ventilation... Yeah, yeah, I'd imagine that. Um, mm. ...ICU as well as hospital length of stay can also be reduced as well. And, of course, that's got an economic um, uh, sort of outcome as well, which could only be of benefit to our healthcare system. Mm. That's fantastic work. I'd be really interested to hear more about our talk as it evolves. That sounds brilliant. Um, you were mentioning, um, you know, I agree with you. Sometimes we need to focus very specifically on the Australian context and make things as customised as possible. But you also mentioned your collaboration with international colleagues. And, and I think during COVID, I've just witnessed the most amazing global collaboration uh, within the speech pathology profession and incredible generosity with sharing resources and research and so on. And I'm wondering whether you've had that same feeling within the respiratory population because within the respiratory um, subspecialty, uh, that feeling of, you know, hearing how it's going for your colleagues overseas and so on. Look, absolutely. And I think the majority of speech pathologists, um, and certainly myself, um, I'm, I'm constantly trying to help contribute to the evidence base and build research, but it's I, I feel it's my sense of duty to not necessarily just hold on to that information. Um, I, I think we're, uh, we have a sense of responsibility to be able to impart any of that information that we possibly can to help our colleagues and ultimately their patients as well. And it is wonderful to see such a wonderful um, international collaboration to keep those lines of communication open. Um, whether we're seeing that specifically within the respiratory cohort, um, I think it's probably we've seen a bit more in ICU than anything else. 
Um, but there, when we, we, there is quite a paucity of, of literature in respiratory disease and swallowing dysfunction. There's some great studies that have come out of the States from Bonnie Martin Harris, um, but there hasn't been that much as of late. Um, so it'd be really interesting to see how, how this all plays out. And certainly in the patients that I've been looking after, um, not only are they resembling that critical illness weakness, but there is an element of that sort of respiratory disease and breath swallow synchrony um, and certainly um, impacts on laryngopharyngeal sensitivity as well, which further compounds um, their, their muscular uh, swallow dysfunction. I'll just jump in. I'm just wondering, um, Nicola, what can Australian speech pathologists do better? Right, okay. <laughs> um, look, I think as a country, um, I think we have a very, very high level of clinical expertise and I think we can be really proud of that. I think we have a great training program. Um, and I also think we have really sound clinical research skills as well and, and we are really well supported by um, some of the most amazing um, professionals across not only the continent but also internationally as well. Um, but I don't. I think we possibly could be better at showcasing some of this research, um, showcasing what it is that we are capable of and what we can actually do and what we can offer not only our patients but also to the speech pathology profession as well. Can I can I ask a question there? So are there are there international forums to do that within the respiratory sector or within the ICU kind of sector? Are there multidisciplinary forums where you get an opportunity to showcase that stuff? Look, there look there absolutely is, and I think that will be in very specific clinical domains. So you'd be looking at the ICU specific ICU mm. conferences or the Burns conferences, um, or even you know, sort of American Thoracic Society. Um, and those forums um, are becoming much more multidisciplinary. They were very medical focused, and that's certainly yeah. something that I have seen over my research career. I felt like I was the only speech pathologist <laughs> in the room of hundreds of, of doctors. Well, that's what comes with being a trailblazer, Nicole. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I've been working on my resilience um, and really trying to... That, that's absolutely my memory. That's, why, that's the question, why the question's there, because I remember you going to all those conferences and, hello, only speech pathologist. <laughs> and and, 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 I, and I'll, I'll admit it was slightly terrifying, um, and, but I think we do have so much to offer and and I think I've probably been sort of knocking on the door long enough now that, that people are sort of realising, and it's not quite clearly, it's not just me, there's so many other health professionals out there as well, um, and, and, and a bunch of fabulous different speech pathologists. We're talking Amy Freeman Sanderson, um, Claire Burns, Liz Ward, Lauralee Wishart. Um, there's so many who have been so persistent in and advocating so strongly for our areas of research for the benefit of our patients um, that um, I, I think it's really gaining a lot of traction um, and I think we're becoming very well respected in, in, the, in the world um, for these different areas of expertise and I, I think it's wonderful. No, I absolutely agree. I think um, all the effort's paying off basically when, when you've... We're getting this. <laughs> That's right. It takes a long time for that kind of recognition. So um, well done. Thank you. That's very kind of you. Thanks. Mm. 
Um, and it's no wonder that you had the incredible draw on your webinar that you held recently. Is, is it right that there were people, that was an international audience, am I right? Um, I, I don't, oh, I've, I've, had, I've had a few requests from international um, people uh, or professionals um, who wanted copies of the red recording. Um, I was really quite astounded by how fast that went out, to be completely honest with you. It was less than a week within it sort of got released um, and um, from my understanding that we had people dialing in from not only New South Wales but also Queensland, uh, Victoria, South Australia, um, Canberra as well as the Northern Territory as well which is which was great to hear and I'm so pleased to be able to share any any knowledge that might be remotely beneficial um, to health professionals and their patients as well so it was it was really lovely to see such a positive response there. And just a great resource generally to, to have, as you said, to be able to, to share uh, post the event. But, but hopefully we're going to be able to engage you more for, through Speech Pathology Australia events in the future. I hope, I'm hoping that's the plan. Yes, I believe that will hopefully be the plan. And uh, Marie and I were having a chat about that um, a little bit earlier today as well. Mm. Well, it couldn't be any more topical. And um, uh, you know, and I realise this is a, a a lifelong interest for you, but it's certainly something that is is resonating for everybody at the moment. And so, you know, thank you for making your body of research available to us all. It's it's hugely important. Um, Susan, did you want to ask anything more? I don't. I don't think so. But Nicola, thanks so much as always. You're so generous, and you've always been so supportive of Spa whenever we've asked you to do things. My pleasure. Yeah, fantastic to talk to you today. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, ladies. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your colleagues. Thank you for listening and bye for now.